So you were saying, Molly. Well, I was trying to explain to you about State Representative Mike Martin, bless his heart. Um, he was elected early on, uh, early Harbinger of the Moral Majority, elected out of Longview, Texas, on a platform of being pro-family and pro-American. Pretty <laughs> controversial stuff. But he turned out to be uh, legislatively impaired. He could not get a single bill passed on account of he's just dumber than a tree stump. Uh, so it's hard to get reelected if you have no record at all, and uh, he looked bad for reelection for old Mike. So he came up with an unusual, an original idea. I, nobody had ever given him enough credit to have thought of a thing like this. What he did was he got his cousin Eddie, and he paid his cousin Eddie to shoot him in the arm with a shotgun. Uh -huh. Then he claimed that it had been done by a satanic and communistic cult. Well, good heavens, the law's all over Central Texas running around trying to find a satanic communistic cult, which are in fairly short supply down where <laughs> we live. And um, turned out, I want to point out on behalf of the Texas legislature, they had had the foresight to make it illegal to pay somebody to shoot you. So don't y'all ever come down to Texas and try and do that. Uh, and it, uh, the plot came unraveled, and Mike Martin became a wanted man, and he went into hiding. He took it on the lamb, went underground. We had to send the Texas Rangers after him. They hunted him high, hunted him low. And at last they tracked him to earth at his mama's house. Found him hiding in the stereo cabinet. Now many people have asked me what he was doing in the stereo cabinet. My theory is Martin always did want to be speaker. <laughs> in case uh, you don't know, that's Molly Ivins and she is an American original. She's telling a story of a Texas legislature. Molly Ivins is, I think, is just about the wittiest uh, journalist in the country, especially covering political affairs. She's from, as you gather, from Texas. Uh, she worked for a brief spell for the New York Times and quit because I think a little too, a little too censorious, just a touch of it there. But uh, Molly's uh, written, it's sort of a memoir, it's not a memoir, it's a collection of her, her essays and observations. It's called Molly Ivins Can't Say That, Can She? And this is a complaint of many good and righteous citizens of Texas and everywhere because Molly's comments are so outrageous and you might say so outrageously truthful. That's why they're outrageous these days. And uh, the publisher's a random house, and uh, you'll hear more and more of Molly. I trust you'll be reading her column one day, which I hope will be syndicated. She works for the Dallas Times-Herald. So Molly Ivins can't say that, can she? Are you in a certain Texas tradition, the maverick tradition? Oh, in absolutely. In fact, there is a maverick, too. The first Texas maverick was, uh, was an eccentric cattleman. Uh, who refused to brand his cow. So if you ever found an unbranded cow in your herd, you knew it was a maverick. That's where the word comes from. And in fact, that family has continued to be uh, famous. Uh, Maury Maverick Sr. was a great flaming New Deal congressman back in the 1930s. His son, Maury Jr., a uh, great uh, uh, freedom-fighting civil rights, civil liberties lawyer down in San Antonio. Before we come to some of your pieces that are very funny, you have to read some and talk about some like, like this legislature. Mike Martin was it? Mike Martin. Martin. Before that, when we think of Texas, ordinary, the non-Texan thinks of John Wayne, John Connolly, Two Gun Pete. That's it. There's another Texas, isn't there? Sure, there is. Um, I think maybe the the most amazing myth about my home state is that Texas is full of rich people. Texas isn't full of rich people. Texas is full of poor people. Uh, but they're, uh, they're even funnier than the rich people. Uh, I don't know why it is, but there is some quality of being larger than life in a, in a slightly pied way. Uh, just a, a kind of um, lunatic exaggeration that seems to afflict damn near everybody in my home state. And I must say, it sure does make for great entertainment. Yeah. 
I'm thinking, well, and, well, what greater entertainment do you say than you're covering the Texas legislature? It is the finest free entertainment in the state of Texas. It's better than the zoo. It's better than the circus. It's just the most extraordinary connection of dweebs and geeks and bozos and crooks. It's just delightful. It's heaven. Well, there's a speech. The, the, the bozos and crooks you talk about are colorful, some horrendously so, but, they, but nonetheless, there they are. You see the... You see the crazy human species at work here, don't you, in a way? I do, and I love it. I mean, uh, I'm I'm very fond of political lunacy, by and large, and a uh, great believer in it. What, how did that happen to you and politics? Before I ask you to perhaps read, or you know it, you put it down here, that speech on booze, was that Delwyn Jones? No, I remember no. who that was. That was Representative Joe Salem of Corpus Christi. I think I he can was. still do that speech. That speech, but how did you? How did politics come to you? Well, I grew up in, in a small town in East Texas, Love Lady, Texas, when we're hoping to impress Love Lady. People. I know, it's embarrassing. Love Lady, Texas. Yeah, our annual civic festival is the Love Lady Love Fest, which I went to report is held every year on February the 14th. Um, when we're hoping to impress people with how cosmopolitan and sophisticated we are in my family, we claim to be from Crockett, knowing that'll bowl them over. Mm. <laughs> um, so there I was growing up in Love Lady, Texas. Um, my daddy's a big right-wing guy, and... Um, I think all Southern liberals come from the same starting point, and that's race. Well, we have to ask the obvious question. You said right-wing family. Mm -hmm. How come you think the way you think well, and write the way you write? The first big political question that came up in my lifetime was the civil rights movement, and I was for it and worked in it. And the second big question was uh, the war in Vietnam, and I was against it and worked against it. And uh, so people told me I was a liberal. In fact, they told me I was double-dyed, pure-blooded liberal on account of I was for civil rights and against Vietnam. And so I said, okay, what did I know? Well, later on, people took to claiming it meant that I was for communism and big government and high taxes, and that's when I learned not to ever let anybody else define my politics. And so that's how come you also became the maverick, the questioner of authority, capital A. Well, I'll tell you, there is uh, something a lot of people forget about the South and Texas is that there is a deep native strain of populism, which is um, perhaps the most democratic movement that ever existed in the United States of America. Um, back in the late 19th century, a bunch of black and white sharecroppers and small farmers got together in alliance against the big banks and the big railroads who were just ripping them off something serious. And the tragedy of that movement is something that we see reflected still in politics today. In fact, just saw it over in Louisiana with the vote for David Duke. Uh, the tragedy is that the people who are getting screwed over will occasionally get together and fight, and then some demagogue or the establishment always manages to raise the race question, get the blacks and whites mad at each other, and so then they, they forget that they're being screwed over by the big guys and fight with each other. Yeah. In Texas, uh, also the Hispanic question. There we come to this. Well, I always hate to say this. It's kind of embarrassing, but they make us learn it in school, studs. Texas is a big state. And it really is from one part to the other about five different states, economically, culturally, geographically. Um, East Texas is part of the Old South. Uh, it was part of the Confederacy. It was uh, cotton plantations and slave owning. Uh, West Texas, your frontier, your ranch and tradition. North Texas, really part of the Great Plains states, uh, more like Kansas than anything else. And South Texas is like nowhere else in the world. It is, um, I think, the most third world part of the United mm. States of America. Uh, poverty is just god-awful. We've got 50% unemployment in a lot of South Texas counties. 
and uh, of course the old is it around San Antonio and those south of San Antonio, San Antonio. the Rio Grande Valley mm. is what we call the valley um, and um, it's a, a whole new culture that's developing down there it's uh, Mexican American in in a true sense now I mean we we start to see those early signs of acculturation we get names now like Shannon Gonzalez and Aaron Rodriguez. I mean, wonderful cultural mixes. Well, by the way, you mentioned the name Gonzalez. Uh, mm. Part of your book, toward the end, certain heroes, populists you talk about, there is a congressman like that named Henry Gonzalez. Henry B. Gonzalez, yes, indeed. He's, uh, in fact, and probably enough now, head of the banking committee in the House of the United States House of Representatives. And we're hoping that he will stave off this nonsense. You know, the same people who deregulated the SNL so successfully back in the 80s are now fixing to try and deregulate the banks in exactly the same way. Well, you talk about a bad idea. There's bankers all over Capitol Hill right now saying that uh, if they don't get deregulated, they're not going to be able to make any money. Now, I ask you, studs, banking is a business where people bring you money. Mm. If they can't make a profit in banking, they don't belong in anything else. Yeah. yeah. This is Molly Ivans talking. As you see, she digs right into the core. She bites into the core of the apple. Now, I think the reason I mentioned Henry Gonzalez staving off these big boys, his predecessor was was Wright Patman, the great Wright Texas Patman, populist. Wright Patman got to meet one thanks to another hero of yours, Bob Sherrill, right. who's a uh, Bob is definitely a maverick journalist, and he respects no authority whatsoever. So there is that populist strain you're talking about. Exactly. And just as the book is a hilarious one, a funny one, toward the end there are heroes, and one with your friend and mine, John Henry Falk. The great and beloved Johnny Falk. And you tell about, as he's told here a number of times, Johnny's fight against the blacklist and the uh, screen actors in the... Uh, after American Federation of Radio, and Johnny sued the bastards. Sued them and won. won, and the bastards had no money, which proved the emperor had no clothes, but what Johnny proved is that the networks, the agencies, the sponsors, were just craven, cowardly, bowed before nothing, but Johnny did not bow. Now, he's a Texan. He is a Texan, and you know, you, uh, both Studs and I knew John Henry and loved him very much. Um, the thing that I sometimes have to laugh about, because John Henry filed the lawsuit that destroyed the blacklisting system in, in radio and television, um, he's sometimes painted as this great, courageous man who took this lonely stand. And In fact, he was reduced at one point in his life to selling encyclopedias door-to-door, which couldn't have been a whole lot of fun. But you knew Johnny as well as I did. He joyed in a fight. He had a wonderful yeah, time doing that. that. It was not this this lonely, suffering, courageous hero. It was our friend John Henry Falk laughing and cackling and could not wait to get at the you bastards. Know, Johnny loved a story I used to tell him about the Depression. This little old black woman, white-haired, remembering it. She's about 90. She remembers she was fighting during the Depression. They were being evicted. She and some old white ladies together in Chicago were fighting uh, the bailiffs and the landlords who were putting the furniture out on the side. And we come along, she says, and Mrs. Kuntz was there, she's just white one with the cane, and she's leading us on this march, and the cops come along, and they try to push us away, so we just threw cayenne pepper in their eyes, and we turned over the black mariahs, and we were beaten up and all. I enjoyed it, I really did. <laughs> <laughs> and so Johnny loved that story. That's what you're talking about. Uh, that's what I'm talking the fight. about. He's joining a good conflict. Fight. Exactly. <laughs> so, Molly, you cover. Well, suppose we take our first break and hear what 
the American audience may have missed because Johnny was a very funny storyteller. And we're talking about also waste, aren't we? Yes, waste of giftedness. Exactly. How the country loses, not just a guy or dissenters. We're talking to Molly Ivans, though. And this book, Molly Ivans Can't Say That, Can She? That was an actual comment, and the paper used it as a billboard. What, what had happened was, when I first started writing the column for Dallas, Texas, which is kind of a buttoned-up town, uh, they weren't used to voices like mine, and um, I had reviewed the performance of a local congressman and felt impelled to observe that if his IQ slipped any lower, we'd have to water him twice a day. <laughs> well, that considerably upset the local Republicans, and they threatened to cancel their subscriptions and boycott the paper. So my newspaper took out billboards, put them up all over Dallas, Texas, uh, just a big sign that said, Molly Ivins can't say that, can she? And so that became the title of your book. These are uh, essays and writings compiled from the last four or five years or so. And it was a random house of the publishers, and it's going to be a runaway. And it is a run. And as is Molly, the journalist, maverick journalist. When we think of the Gulf War and how the journalists toadied and went along and took the handouts from the Pentagon from George Bush, it was beyond anything since the Spanish-American War. No, so that raises a big question mm -hmm. that I.F. Stone, a man you admired, yeah. said, yeah. you don't play tennis with these guys with a That's White House right. secret. So this is, you I take it. You got to sit in your bathtub and not want anything, is what he said. Yeah. Yeah, not want anything from them. Not invitations to dinner. And even, and this was always, I think it's the hardest for many of us, not, not even want the esteem of your peers. Yeah. And that's hard. Yeah. Cheryl is free of it. I'm not quite Bob free Cheryl, of it. you are free yeah. of it. Yes, you are. Yeah. Bob Cheryl is an, uh, as I have stoned with a number of, uh, Ronnie Duggar to some extent, who was founder and editor of, the, of a maverick paper called the Text Observer. Still going along and hobbling a little money, but great principles. You worked for them for a while too. Six years. Six as years. Editor so you broke in with the, You broke in then with what we call these days an alternative paper. That's right. That's yeah. Right. And I'm thinking about coming back to the journalists. You thought as you watch TV, and the president's Bush or it could have been Nixon, anybody addresses the car. He calls them by their first names. No, Mary, John. Now, how can anybody tackle a guy, really tackle a guy who's in power, if they know each other by their first names? That in itself does something, doesn't it? I think it's important to be an outsider. Although I must say, having covered politics for a long time, it's one of those beats where you do get to know and like these people. Um, you do schmooze with them a lot. And I think there are reporters who can, can cover it without being friendly, but they're few and far between. Yeah. I've never quite been able to manage it. Yeah. I actually become fond of many of the um, most hopeless geeks in the Texas yeah, well, legislature. In Texas. <laughs> yeah, the Texas. By the way, you've got to read some of these speeches as we go along. But before that, we were talking about Johnny yeah. Falk, one of the, who, who has a chapter in your book, right. his battle, uh, but also Johnny's humor. He was a storyteller in the old-time tradition. And these are figures with whom you agree, disagree, but they had the human aspect. Suppose we had Johnny doing Miss oh, Fanny Rollins. She, he'd create a whole community. It was called Pear Orchard. And it was not just Texas, it was anywhere, with all the prejudices and the hopes and the nobility and the craziness. And suppose we have Johnny's voice. This is what would have been heard and seen on television that was missed. 
Fanny Rollins. Mm -hmm. And Miss Fanny Rollins is a sweet, capacious lady. Her bosoms go all the way around her backbone. Her arms kind of rest out on them. She's always sitting on her swing. She takes up the whole swing. And she's an authority. She said, Johnny, you know what's the matter with America? Violence. And you know who's a creating the violence? Hippies. These old tacky, hateful hippies, the old hair hanging down, and they're wearing them tacky clothes, are beating on them guitars night and day. Is a what's a doing it? And you know what's a starting them at it? Is these old universities? Yes, sir. They go to them universities and them old professors, old hateful atheistic things, make them sign their names to test papers that they'll be hippies and be again everything when they get out, or they won't give them t uh, uh, passing marks. And you know God's good. He spared my son Gervis. Gervis never went to no university. He dropped out of school in the third grade. God spared him from that. He ain't no hippie, but he he's the one that put it all together for me, honey. He was in Vietnam. He was a soldier over in Vietnam. And him and his buddy Clyde said they hadn't been over there two days till they seen the connection with these hippies over here. All them Vietnamese people's hippies. Every last one of them. Wearing old tacky clothes, hair hanging down every which way. And... Gervis said they'd gone barefooted, grown men and women in front of their own children over there. Yes, and Gervis was on one of them search and destroy missions, and uh, him and Clyde was, and you know, the, the planes go over and they hit one of them there, they call them villages, and they hit them real good with that napalm. And old Gervis said you can see the flames are going, the smoke are going 40 miles and Then away. there's the dark humor, but then he switches to another guy. And this kid comes back a wholly different kid. I know. He I hits know. the whole human. John Henry had the most extraordinary ability. I mean, he would go around speaking in places that you might think were hopeless in terms of political enlightenment. I don't need to be addressing the Rotary Club in Palestine or something utterly unlikely. And this was back during what we in Texas used to call Lyndon's War. Mm. And you could not publicly oppose Lyndon's War in our state. And John Henry would talk about um, how he just so enthusiastic about the war. And I just thought it was wonderful. He called, remember his cousin Ed Snodgrass was mm -hmm. one of the people he'd quote. He'd have Ed Snodgrass saying, well, I just think, you know, we send our best boys over there in million-dollar airplanes wearing pressed uniforms. You know what them Vietnamese do? Come at it night <coughs> on their bicycles, wearing pajamas. Not even Christian. Yeah. They don't like what we're doing for them. They ought to go back where they come from. <laughs> and he'd get people to laugh and so. But at the same time, of course, you'd start thinking, you know, this is a ridiculous situation. Uh, he could get through to people whose minds were so closed, uh, and he always did it by making them laugh. Remember, he got on hee-haw, too, which is put down a lot by the sophisticates, you know, hee-haw being a certain kind of program. And yet they understood him, and they dug him, and he'd get a, a dig or two there. He'd do it wherever he could, plant that little... Uh, he was a Johnny Appleseed in a way. Making but people think with laughter. It was, it was a talent. It was a talent. So that's Texas, Lyndon B. Johnson. What could be more Texas in extravagance? Two ways, isn't it? Yeah, you Two talk ways. about larger than life, and the warts were larger than a knife, too. Yeah, the warts. So it's two yeah. ways. Vietnam, yeah. the horrendousness, the lying. At the same time, no one, I suppose, no president. And Roger Wilkins, remember, said that. Yeah. Did more for civil rights than this well, I think, I think crazy Texan. Lyndon Johnson really is a... a tragic figure in the in the classic Greek sense. I really believe that had it not been for Vietnam, he would have gone down as one of the great mm. presidents. And but it's hard destroyed to him. cut that ward out and that became part no. of that. You can't. I'm, 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 I really think that unless, unless history holds the people who have the power responsible for how they use it, then we're never going to make any sense of it. And ultimately, I think that, that Vietnam was such a disaster that... Uh,
We judge that uh, it destroyed him and his presidency. You just said something. Unless we hold the people responsible in authority, one of your fellow Texans, and you and I know the ex-congressman, Bob Eckhart, was finally beaten by the oil interests, said one day, he said, exchanging cigars and areas, with that black ribbon bow tie. And Bob says, Americans have lost their sense of outrage, is what he said. Sometimes it is hard to be outraged and people react differently. I, I occasionally lose mine. I never, never stop thinking that it's funny. I can always laugh at it because, after all, years of covering Texas politics will give you an incredibly strong stomach. Uh, but uh, <laughs> You mean a liberal in Texas is right. in your dollars. Right. Uh, I have been known to uh, let my anger, my outrage, get worn out. But fortunately, uh, there's always some fool who provokes it anew. Mm. Yeah. Well, Rick, who is an actual speech I heard delivered, 60-second session. Why don't you set the scene and, re and read that? Well, we were having a big debate in Texas legislature about whether or not to put an extra 10 cents a bottle tax on a bottle of booze. And uh, Joe Salem of Corpus was in favor of it, and Rosa spoke as follows. He said, gentlemen, he did sound sort of like a chihuahua, gentlemen, <laughs> imagine to yourselves that you are going into the booze shop to buy yourselves a bottle of booze. And on your way into the booze shop, you pass a little child standing on the sidewalk. He says, mister, can you buy me a lollipop? And you says, no, son, I can't buy you no lollipop. And you go on into the booze shop, and you buy yourself a bottle of booze. And you pay your extra 10 cents tax. Ain't nobody yet never paid what it's worth. And on your way out of the booze shop, you see that little child again standing on the sidewalk. And you says to yourself, if I can afford an extra 10 cents for a bottle of booze, I can afford to buy that little child a lollipop. And so, gentlemen, I ask for your vote on this bill for the sake of the children of Texas. <laughs> what could be fairer? That's logical. There's a, there is a crazy logic to all. <laughs> but these are the, this is the speech you actually heard. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, what in covering... Way. So, and uh, there's a guy... You speak of the double aspect of What was his name? Charlie Wilson of Lufkin. Charlie Wilson, Lufkin, Texas. Lufkin, he's, where now? Lufkin. Lufkin's East Texas, deep yeah. East Texas. Um, mm. So we're talking, well, I, it's hard to explain, Charlie. I, let, let me just say that um, a couple of years ago, I was sitting in my office minding my own business when the phone commenced to ring off the hook, and people were calling from all over the country, gobbling in outrage because of a story they'd read on the wires that some congressman from Texas was over in Afghanistan wearing cowboy boots. He had Miss World with him, and he was looking to kill communists. Well, there's only one Miss thing World that, was with him. Yeah, Miss World was with him. Um, I, and there's only one thing you can say at times like that, and that's, must be Charlie Wilson. He's uh, <laughs> sort of the Hunter Thompson of Congress. Uh, he's, a, he's a gonzo politician. And uh, the, the charming thing about Charlie is that he got no pretense to him. He got no hypocrisy. Uh, he's all up front. He likes ladies, and he likes whiskey, and he likes having a good time. That's his nickname, Good Damn Charlie Wilson. He got a standing order to um, his office manager on the hiring of secretaries as follows. He always says, you can teach him to type, but you can't teach him to grow tits. <laughs> now, in this day and age of sexual harassment and political correctness, I must say that um, there is something kind of refreshing about Charlie's open approach to all these questions. Mm -hmm. How would Charlie have reacted to the Thomas hearing? Actually, I don't know, but I, I suspect that he would have, uh, in private, made any number of really terrible sexist jokes, which he tends to do, and I suspect he would have voted right. 
again, in my opinion, right Voted against, for Cla- against Clarence yeah. Thomas. The funny thing about Charlie for all his outrageous pose as, as a sexist and, and uh, big commie hater is that he's actually got a fairly progressive record. Um, he's always been right on race. He's always been um, open. And in fact, he votes right on women, too. Uh, women That's interesting. Issues. There's a contradiction yeah. in Charlie, then. Yeah, he likes to play the role. Yeah. In a way, I was Jim Wright to some extent, too, wasn't it? Well, no, I think Jim had a different set of problems. Uh, I was one of the first to call for Jim Wright's resignation because I'm not amused by people who make money in public office, but I will tell you that I think that was a real loss to the country. And I also think, maybe I'm being defensive because I'm a Texan, but there was a strain of that um, anti-Jim Wright stuff that that really kind of made my skin crawl. It's, I remember a column by George Will in which he observed sarcastically that the speaker Wright, who has apparently written more books than he has read. Well, once again, that's the assumption that because you got a Texas accent, you must be dumb as a, as a tree stump. Jim Wright is one of the most literate people I've ever known. He reads widely. He speaks more than one in several languages. He can quote Shakespeare by the hour. He can quote Bible. He can quote the great poets. Jim Wright carries more around in his head than George Will's quote boy can look up in a year. His quote boy. Yeah, mm-hmm. and yet here, here's By the, the way, assumption the that because he talks funny. By the way, there's a story that we can't go into now, but there's yeah. quite a story about his quote boy. But yeah. go ahead, sorry. Oh, they, uh, George Will pays some kid to look up quotes that make him look real learned. It's, it's just the deal on that. But at any rate, every now and again I get defensive about people thinking just because you talk yeah. funny you must be dumb. There is a story I've made around time that... Uh, it, there's no way of condoning what Jim Wright did, but the fact that he came out strong against contra aid. Well, I'm I'm convinced fact. that's what finally did him in. Uh, as you know, he um, um, actually went has spent a considerable amount of time in Central America. He's just finished writing a book about it too. Uh, speaks Spanish, knew a lot of the people, and uh, felt that that this policy of backing the contras was just pure folly. And you know, the nice thing about Jim, unlike the um, Democratic leadership we've got now in the Congress. He was a fighter. Yeah. I mean, he he didn't care Since for Republicans and that, he no, it, set out to get them. I think it's Gore Vidal who made the comment before we take our break that what we need now is a second party. In exactly. a sense, so it's you implying there about the unit quality of Ersatz's opposition. It is amazing, isn't it? That's, that's the perfect phrase, the eunuch quality yeah, yeah. Of, of the Congressional Democrats. Uh, before we take our break, we'll talk about phrases. Jim Hightower is another in the populist tradition, who was a very popular commissioner of agriculture. That's right. Now, he's also in this populist aspect of text we're talking about. Indeed he is. But he also has ways of speaking the truth with a phrase, like Clements was a time governor, and what do you say Clements is learning? Well, we, we, we learned that uh, Bill Clements, uh, one of our dimmer governors, was studying Spanish. Uh, and uh, Jim Hightower heard about it and said, oh, good, now he'll be by ignorant. <laughs> Talking about to Molly Ivins, and her book is Molly Ivins Can't Say That, Can She? But the fact is, she does say it. And in this book, Random House of the Publishers, and by the way, her peers, are, that is her fellow journalists, know that Molly... Uh, who is it? Oh, David Broder, for one, says, if there's a shrewder, funnier observer of the American scene writing today than Molly Ivins, I do not know her. Or him, may I add. Uh, this is unconventional wisdom, you bet. 
with no inhibitions, as you can gather. Bless her and don't let her change. That's Broder and, of course, uh, uh, many, so many of the other journalists agree. I suppose the Texas legislature becomes so much the source, isn't it? D d oh, it's such a rich your... source of material, I can't believe I don't pay those guys to behave as bad as they do. The word, and the name John Henry Fogg used to refer to Lubbock a lot. Now, the word Lubbock, I know what <laughs> Lubbock represents. intrinsically what? comic, isn't it? Yeah. Lubbock. And it's an intrinsically comic place. I have such bad taste, I'm actually fond of it. I always say the great thing about being from Lubbock, Texas, is that it's hard to be pretentious or affected yeah. if you're from Lubbock. Damned hard. Now, Lubbock is what, I'm just curious, uh, it, it, the archetypal Texas town, isn't it, or is it's, it? It's uh, northwest Texas, and that means it's sitting out on a flat old plain about 800 miles before you can find a tree. Everything is one color, yeah. dry. Uh, it's flat. It's open. It's about. It's a world where the, where it's about ninety eight point three percent sky out yeah. there. And the funny thing is that after you get used to it, Lubbock feels like freedom, and everywhere else feels like yeah. jail. Why did you say the sky is so high? What you made a comment earlier in the book. One the of reason the sky is bigger is because we don't have any trees. Because there are no trees. <laughs> but a lot of myths about Texas that need to be shot down. I was thinking since we're talking about places, the name. You work for the Dallas Times-Herald, right. which is a rather, they're two papers, one of the old conservative papers. That's right, our arch rivals, the dread morning snooze. And that's, and that's the, uh, but you work for the Times-Herald, which right. is a little more... Scrappy, more scrappy paper. Scrappy. Yeah. So we come to Dallas. Even the name itself evokes the TV show, money, corruption, or is it something else? Well, um, Dallas in some ways sort of amuses me. Uh, Dan Weiser once observed, a student of the city, that if Dallas has a soul, and Dallas is just as entitled to have one as any place mm. else, mm. Uh, it's Dutch. I mean, its chief virtues are orderliness and cleanliness, neither of which is a very exciting virtue. Mm. On the other hand, beats dirt and disorder. Dallas is where they ought to put the tomb of the unknown shopper. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I like that. It's a materialistic old town. Now, you know what I like? I've been laughing studs. I am one of the few people in the world who considers Midwesterners exotic. I am just thrilled yeah. and excited to be back in the Midwest. Um, I worked uh, for the Minneapolis Tribune for three years very early in my career and spent the whole time in a state of bemused befuddlement absolutely enchanted because Middle Westerners are so sensible. Now, see, I grew up in East Texas where practically everybody's crazy, some of them to sort of an alarming degree. And I'm just enchanted by the sensibleness of Midwesterners. Um, it seems to me that almost everything they say makes you want to nod your head up and down and go, yep, that's right. I was uh, saying earlier that um, if you go someplace like the Grand Canyon or Disneyland where people come from all over the country, I swear you can always tell people from the Middle West. And it's not the accent, it's because they always saying something terminally sensible, like, Ethel, I told you if you wore your high heels on a hike, you'd get sore feet. <laughs> right away, you know, he's from Kansas and she's probably from Alabama because Middle Western women are too sensible to wear high heels on a hike. So talking about high heels and Midwest, you, uh, uh, I can't leave Dallas either, cheerleaders. You, you, have a, you have a description of uh, the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders being very proper and... Well, it's hard for people to imagine who don't understand the concept of Baptist sex, but... Uh, yeah, Baptist sex. Baptist sex, yes. Um, you may know from watching Dallas Cowboy football on, on your TV that uh, the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders tend to dress up in uh, plunging, revealing costumes and very tight white shorts and 
hop around jiggling in front of thousands of people. Now, this is considered down in Texas an honorable and respectable calling. And um, the thing about being kind of, you know, objectively you might think, well, these are sort of open-air coochie girls, but they mm. consider themselves veritably the avatar of, of feminine, proper feminine uh, behavior. behavior. And uh, basically in Texas... Um, you can behave like that as long as you have on a whole lot of makeup and a whole lot of hairspray and preferably a little gold cross around your neck. Now, that's what we call Baptist sex, yeah. and, and it's just sort of this bulletproof coating that comes with the hairspray and the makeup. You know, you are the only one that can hit that. We're talking now about a certain twilight zone here that's come up with the TV, the advent of Jimmy Swaggart before his downfall and the others, and it's that touch and those... Lovely girl singers there with that touch of provocativeness. And this is what you call Baptist sex, or religious sex, right. you might say. Other other denominations may be involved here. But well, that's an interesting I was, phenomenon. I was it? born and raised amongst foot washing Baptists and uh, hold that it did me no great harm. Saved three times before I was 12. As you can tell, it didn't take, but that's all right. Mm -hmm. I don't, they're not people I look down on. Um, and and um, don't regard fundamentalists as, as something strange or unusual, just people and friends and neighbors. Uh, and I, in some ways, I think it's one of the last respectable bigotries. Uh, and last respectable bigotries. Bigotries, yeah. to sneer at fundamentalists. You know, the irony is the origin of the Baptists is, is that of dissent. Yes, they indeed. They were the dissenters. Indeed, as, were, as, as initially were the Methodists. Well, it is, I must say, uh, as uh, the great William Brand, a Texas newspaper man, once observed, the trouble with our Texas Baptists is that we do not hold them underwater long enough. Um, and it is fun to sit around and make fun of Baptists in Texas because uh, they're quite powerful, and I think satire is a weapon that should always be aimed against the so powerful. On the subject of satire, who was your colleague who said, uh, since Henry Kissinger got the Nobel Prize, you might say since Nick... Reagan is elected, re-elected. Satire is dead. Satire died the day they gave Henry Kissinger the Nobel Peace Prize. Well, as Gore Vidal observed in another context, never underestimate the sense of humor of the Swedes. <laughs> no, I think satire is traditionally the weapon that the powerless use against the powerful. And what troubles me now is that these, these kind of new young comics like Andrew Dice Clay, who seem to think it's funny to use satire against powerless people, when you aim satire against powerless people, it is not only cruel, it is profoundly vulgar. Um, but I like laughing at people in power, mostly because they're genuinely funny, and besides, I think it's an important American tradition to laugh at our politicians. I think you hit, you, several times you've mentioned that, about uh, satire is the weapon against the powerful. Mm. and used against the powerless, as it is frequently these days, is, is a reflection of the mean-spiritedness, too, that administrations have brought with them. Tr there has a trickle-down theory, mm -hmm. and it wasn't the prosperity trickle-down, it was the mean-spiritedness that trickled down, in a sense. And so the satire, you're talking about misuse becoming, but against well, I think, again, that's, that's a, a perception, um, as we never say in Lubbock, there's something called épaté la bourgeoisie, mm. uh, meaning outrage in the middle-class folk, mm. which has always been considered great fun and getting people all stirred up in a great flap about things. I like you using that French approach to it. Yeah, well, I, you know, we <laughs> speak a lot of French out in Lubbock, so I'm no good at it. Um, 
I do. Uh, I do think that some of these comics think that they're being daring and yeah. outre yeah. and and going against the common opinion. But of course, I live in the real world. I don't live on a college campus, and I don't live in Manhattan. Uh, I live in a place where people tell race jokes and rape jokes and battered women jokes, and uh, I'm sure not worried about any excess of sensitivity in this country. Now, thinking about on that point where you live and the stuff you pick up, and here's where the satire of you, Molly Ivins, comes into play. It's against the powerful or those who represent them, which brings us back to uh, what it you said about, uh, you made a comment about our president about his shallowness and so what and you said well I've been covering him since 1966 and frankly I always thought George Bush was sort of a lightweight said calling him shallow is like calling a dwarf short he is a piece of work and he you know it's I always try to say not to put him down completely George Bush uh, is an amiable fella he really has lovely manners I always think his mama should get credit for Mm -hmm. that uh, but I, I always took him for a lightweight, and I'm, sometimes, you know, when someone is sort of invested with the power and the authority of the presidency, it's, it's as though they sort of become magnified, and it's hard to tell what's really in there. I saw him uh, uh, not long ago um, upset about the Middle East hostages and saw him on television with his hands on his hips talking about those darn hostage takers, those darn <laughs> hostage takers. <laughs> I mean, this is a grown man who served in the United <laughs> States Navy. He cannot possibly really talk like that. And, uh, you know, it's that funny the sense you always get when you listen to Bush that, that there's something just slightly off. It's not just his verbal dyslexia, which I find absolutely, I find actually fairly entertaining. I mean, he has a terrible time struggling to express himself in the English language, but if you're used to him, you can follow him without a lot of trouble. Um, no, this is the, this odd sense one has watching Bush that, that there's just something not natural about him. And I always figure one of those psycholinguistics people at the mm-hmm. universities would take him on. Well, they have. Mm-hmm. Some professor at University of California named Lakoff did a study of him and uh, with lots of learned words and learned citations uh, announced that the reason George Bush sounds funny is that he's frequently trying to pretend to be somebody he's not. And uh, the person who said it even better is this Dana Carvey, who imitates him on the program Saturday Night Live, does a brilliant impersonation of him. Somebody asked Carvey how he gets him so well. He said, oh, George Bush is easy. You just do Mr. Rogers doing John Wayne. That's very funny. Isn't that good? Yeah. Yeah. Now, his predecessor, the actor's predecessor, you say he never lied. He didn't lie. He never lied. He believed all that he stuff. Believed. I mean, of course we saw. <laughs> Which reminds me of something. You have a quote here. We know about Ronnie and uh, re, uh, he remembers that, how he did is the mystery. Uh, that young pilot going down on the plane, the land, he cradled the tail gunner in his arms, and the question Royko here asked, how do you know that? <laughs> What's your dash, Charlie? You say something about, uh, George Bush, remember when he thought he might be shot down, was shot down? Right. Said he thought of separation of church and state? Yes, he did. He said, you could tell he was running for office. He said, they asked him what happened when his plane got hit. He's hurtling toward the Pacific Ocean out there, his young life uh, about to end. And they asked him what he thought. He said, well, he thought of his mama and his daddy, and he thought of the Lord God Almighty. And then realizing he was running for office, he said, and the separation of (laughs) church and state, of course. Oh, Lordy. I can't believe we don't pay these guys. They're so funny. I want to talk to you about something, if I could, though. Please. It's um, kind of a larger political issue. Um, I am more and more convinced that the reason we get so fouled up when we try to discuss politics in this country is because we keep assuming that the political spectrum runs from right to left. The real political spectrum runs from top to bottom. 
And we really need to keep our eye on that. I'll tell you what I'm talking about. It's the acceleration of the pace at which wealth and power is being concentrated into fewer and fewer hands. Now I've got a country where the richest 1% of the folks in this country control 40% of all the wealth in America. And uh, that's getting worse. It's getting worse just sort of by leaps and bounds. And if you stand and watch politics real close the way I do, just uh, stand in the middle of that sausage factory down in Austin, what you see is that the people with money and power come in and bend the entire political system and bend all the economic rules to their own advantage. And uh, I'm real worried about it, as I know John Henry would be if he were around, because I think we're about to lose the whole thing. Uh, unless we, unless we shape up now, I don't blame the people for for not wanting to take part in politics. Seems to me cynicism, apathy, and disgust and are real real rational responses mm. to mm. to the state of American politics today. Uh, but I do think we need to go beyond that. You know what Johnny would say if he were here. Um, it's the reason I care, and it's the reason both of us love the man. I do believe that all men are created equal. And I believe that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I believe that governments are instituted among men to secure these rights, and that whenever any government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it. You know, Molly, as you say that, I think of Johnny, but as you say it, that's pretty much your credo. In all the humorous things you say, there's this undercurrent, and I think you hit it. I think it's time these phrases, liberal and conservative, which have lost all meaning, have to go. It's have and have not is what you're talking about. It's exactly right. And the have somewhat is soon going to be among the have nots. Yeah, middle class just getting squeezed like anything. Molly Ivins and her book, Molly Can't Say That, Can't She? And I'm so delighted that she not only can say it, she is saying it. And Random House are the publishers of this one. The last thing you said, of course, is the key to everything you write about, that uh, you don't like people shoved against the wall, people up against it being ridiculed and humiliated and lied about, whether it be, quote, unquote, the welfare queen, whereas the Pentagon, the biggest welfare bums have always been in the Pentagon, that we know. Well, the I'm, crazy tax structure. Which yeah. <laughs> By the way, the fact that we have more billionaires than ever jumped, you know, sprung a number. Oh, Since I know. The, and they're paying... The they're paying Doesn't that tell us where did they get the billions? Pay, paying less and less in taxes, too. I do have to tell you a funny story about one of our better right-wing billionaires, H. Ross Pirot. It's the way the name is pronounced in East Texas. He's in your book. Uh-huh. Um, I was writing a column one time about the, what I considered an outrage, which was the so-called tax reform of the Reagan years, where they completely abolished the progressive income tax. We don't have one anymore in this country. What we have is a two-tier flat tax rate. And I was holding forth on why that was a real bad idea, and I wrote a sentence that said, in conclusion, and so you see, if you make more than $17,500 a year, you're now in exactly the same tax bracket as H. Ross Perot. And then, because they always taught me to write the balance sentence, I put a comma, who, and, and I added, who makes more than a million dollars a year? So I want to give some idea of how, how much richer he was than you might be. Uh, but I made the fatal journalistic error studs. I did not check. I just knew he's big rich, and I figured I was safe saying he made a million dollars a year. Well, the next morning, the business desk guys called from Dallas. They all laughing their butts off. They said, Ivan, H. Ross Perot makes a million dollars a day. 
I said, damn, I didn't know Kuwait made a million dollars a day. What do I know about big, rich people? So I'm sitting there thinking to myself, boy, this is going to be an embarrassing correction. Phone rings, and a voice says, Ms. Ivan, this is the operator calling Collect. Will you accept charges from H. Ross Perot? <laughs> he did. He called me Collect. <laughs> and I was such a fool, I accepted the charges. Instead of well, saying, hell no, tell the cheap son of a bitch yeah. to call back on his own yeah. nickel. Isn't that something? You call it Collect. <laughs> I like that. I liked it, too. That's He's why a funny rich. Guy. By the way, it occur to you that you have to love money as you presumably love God to be rich. I mean, it, I think you have to worship it. Mm -hmm. As you worship, it is God. Mammon is really your God, not God. Mammon is your God. Yeah. Well, and you, you know, but you, unless you, you do that, you're not going to be rich. You read about all those guys like like Ivan Bosky and Mike Milken who who made the multi hundreds of millions of dollars. And you know, the whole striking thing about that whole era is that we've always known that unlimited greed was poor morality. Well, it also turns out to be damn poor economics, and they really did wreck the economy of this country. That whole binge of mergers and acquisitions and LBOs and loading corporations up with debt, that's absolute folly. And that's why I keep trying to tell people, look, that scale's not from right to left. It's from top to bottom. So, that's what you want to keep so your eye on. So it leads to something, even before we close, and that's you earlier spoke with the misuse of words, that the issue is not uh, right, left, or as I put it, conservative, liberal, no many, but up and down, have that's and have right. nots. And so we misuse, we speak of the recession almost ending. We love euphemisms. There is a depression for millions of Americans today. A deep, deep depression. Do you observe that, or am I, is it my imagination? No, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I, th I think that whole Reagan insanity of supply-side economics has just messed up this country real bad. And you get nobody talking seriously about it. Uh, you see some interesting reflections of it. Uh, in fact, I was intrigued by that. our neighbors in Louisiana um, but, uh, many of them voted for David Duke, the racist candidate. Well, I think I see both, believe it or not, I see a good side to that. Um, one thing is that voting for David Duke in Louisiana is about as far from the establishment as you can get. It's a way for folks who know they are getting screwed over to just give the finger to the whole establishment. But what troubles me about that vote is that, as you know, the oldest dodge that gets run on the people in this country get their eye off the shell with the P under it, is to put a shell next to it that says race. And that's what destroyed the populist movement back in the last century. I mean, it was originally an alliance of black and white sharecroppers, yeah. black and white small farmers, pulling together to work against the banks and the railroads, the big corporate interests that were screwing them over. Well, every Southern demagogue who's ever wanted to get ahead has used that race card. And here's old Duke running that same old sorry trick again. Well, he had a predecessor, George Bush, had as his campaign manager, unofficial campaign manager, Willie Horton. That's right. Know? Well, the establishment uses it, too, yeah. to divide the people yeah. at the bottom. So he has the cue from the establishment. That's right. In that sense. So what, is, what do you observe, Molly, deep, deep down, because you are an observer, is there something underneath not yet tapped, or are we in uh, hopeless? Oh, no, I never, I, I must tell you that I am optimistic yeah. to the point of idiocy. Um, I think it's all fixable. I just want somebody, and we all know it's broken. I mean, I just want people to stand up and start talking about how to fix it. You know, this is the way to wind up. You know, we hear this old cliche, it's as phony as a $3 bill, and that is you cannot legislate morality. The fact is we have traffic laws. <laughs> Simple, that would say, and people are bit, or they, they get punished, they get fined. If the laws were 
not winked at by those up above. We're talking about civil rights laws, of course. Mm. Of course they'd be obeyed. Be, I, right now, Jackson, Mississippi, has far less tension than Chicago, Illinois. I believe I know that. I know that, because I was there. No question. You just said, I'm not saying it's perfect. It is not. South has its perfect. Right. But there's no, no doubt. But the fact is, finally, there was, and I suppose the other aspect of the white southerner and uh, the black southerner have always been somewhat closer. Sometimes one. that's that's yeah. used as as a yeah. phony thing. We know all black yeah. people. I, I don't mean thing. that way. But in fact, I mean, there's also the extent to occurs. which it is literally. True. I mean, when a change occurs. Yeah, yeah. So let's end with one Bo Pilgrim story. Bo Pilgrim, <laughs> uh, he had a way. He's not supposed to bribe the legislators. He, I take it, he's a small-time industrialist. Right? Well, I tell you what he is. He's the chicken man down in Texas. Uh, Mr. Bo Pilgrim uh, runs a big chicken factory over in East Texas and shows up on our television screen wearing a Pilgrim hat, talking about what fine chickens he raises. And uh, he strolled onto the floor of the Texas Senate uh, while they were having a big fuss over work, workers' compensation law, and just started handing out checks made out for ten thousand dollars with the payee blank. I mean, anybody who wanted <laughs> one, just step right up, just hand them to any senator. You know, he didn't care. And um, the amazing thing was that it turned out all to be perfectly legal. I mean, there was nothing yeah. anybody could do to stop yeah. it. Little campaign contribution right there on the Senate floor. Mr. Pilgrim said he just wanted those senators to think about the workers' compensation <laughs> issue. A fine, public-spirited citizen, we were all so proud. Uh, what did you said to also, also you got to end with, uh, which tells it all really in a way. If one thing you could, the applicant for a job, how does that go again? You know, the one uh, applying for a job, and he said, "Well, my, uh, what did you do?" Oh, I remember. Um, what, what, what? That's <laughs> a story. Actually, was is um, a true one. Uh, I was telling some story down in Texas, uh, you know, which would seem incredible if you're not familiar with Texas, and uh, by way of pointing out that it was entirely possible that such a thing had happened, I got down the story about um, the applicant to uh, Harvard Medical School uh, who did want to explain, uh, you know, didn't want to let it go overlooked, that uh, he had, in fact, murdered both his parents. And uh, so he said to the lady at the Harvard Medical School application office, well, I, I have a felony on my record. And she said, oh, well, many people have these marijuana things. That's not serious. He said, no, no, I, I killed both my parents. There was a long pause, and the lady from Harvard said, well, these things do happen. <laughs> <laughs> these things do happen, you might say, is what Molly Ivins covers. Molly Ivins can't say that, can she? Uh, she can and she does. I'm delighted to say it. Thank you very much. That's the name of the book, and Random House, the publishers, and it's a pip. <laughs>